We're continuing in our study in Deuteronomy by looking, continuing to look at the sixth commandment, do not murder. This commandment has to do with issues concerning human life, uh, sort of a very broad category of issues relating to human life. And Deuteronomy 20, in particular, is addressing uh, the issue of war, uh, warfare in the life of Israel. So uh, it's a little bit challenging. It's a complicated subject. I feel like I say this every week, right? Every week I come up and say, this is a really challenging subject. The issue of war and what constitutes just war and what's the, you know, is pacifism like uh, a, a right response and all those things are big questions um, that I'm not going to deal with <coughs> in this sermon. Um, but, but I honestly think that we can learn things about uh, those topics from a text like this, or at least in part from a text like this. Um, but that's not where we're headed. I want to ask us the question, um, really, how does this passage have significance or bearing on us as a Christian and as a church? Uh, that's a harder question in some way. We can wrestle through all the sort of philosophical Topics relating to war, um, but the bigger question I think is how does this scripture impact our lives personally as Christians, as a church? Um, we have to keep the passage in mind from 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, woman, child of God might be competent, equipped for every good work. That's our aim, right? So with that, let's turn to the text. Let's read God's word. We're going to read Deuteronomy 20, uh, verses 1 to 15. It's found for you in your bulletins. You can turn with me uh, there in your Bibles as well. Hear God's word. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and army an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord, your God, is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, <clears throat> lest he die in battle and another man dedicated. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man Enjoy his fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another take her. And the officer shall speak farther to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful or faint hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he uh, make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, the commander shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and you shall serve and serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city 
All its spoils you shall take as plunder for yourself, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of the nations here. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is hard words, things that seem challenging to our modern sensibilities and ears, and we don't always understand them. Um, Lord, help us to see your glory. Help us to see Christ more clearly. Impress your truths on our hearts that we might live in light of the gospel. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hard things here. Challenging. Um, Now, I don't just want to remind us that all scripture is profitable for us. It's all breathed out by God. But I also want to remind us that this was written for a nation ruled by the Lord that would inevitably face very real warfare. And they needed to know exactly how to conduct themselves for that war. Every nation on the face of the planet has some form of rules for warfare, either in their own or more globally. We have things like the Geneva Convention. Um, So it's not a wonder that Israel would have this section in their own law book. And there's some important principles we should discuss with regard to the nature, or that we could discuss, uh, with regard to the nature of warfare. What does it mean, as I already stated, to, to consider what just war theory is and what is uh, considered a just war and we could wrestle and debate the merits of every given war and we could talk about when to use force and when not to. We could go down those routes. We could talk about pacifism and whether it has certain merits or not. All of those things we could discuss. And I do think a text like this could be informative, but that is not what I think the main point of this text is for us. For the Israelites in the Old Testament, at least for their time frame, it was extremely important what would happen if they went to war, particularly against nations that were not the Canaanites. So, if this isn't what we're going to talk about, warfare, what is the point? What's the point? Well, I want to do something a bit different this morning. I'll give you my point in just a second. But as we go along, I want us to think sort of meta a little bit. Um, I want us to think about how we come to an understanding of a text like this for ourselves. Uh, I I want to give you some tools uh, to, to help you. When you're in your own study, when you're at home or you're with your Bible study or whatever you're doing, uh, as you're looking at God's Word, I want to give you tools when you come to a text like this. And so I'm going to kind of craft the sermon in such a way that it gives you something to go home with, not just in terms of the meat of the, the content, but also of the how we understand a text like this. And so I want to give you some tools. There are lots of good tools out there. There are many books. Uh, There are uh, dictionaries. There are commentaries. There are sermons. You can go online and listen to every sermon that has been published. There's probably thousands on a a text. Maybe not this one. Maybe there's not a thousand on this text. Um, But there's definitely a lot. Um, And you can go and you can come to understand. That's not the kind of tool that I want to give you. I want to give you a really, really very simple tool. Four questions. That's it. Kids, you can write these down. Okay? 
I'm going to give you four questions. Adults, you can write these down as well. Um, they're not all the questions that you might want to ask of the text, but I think there are four fundamental and basic questions that you can ask of a text like this. Um, the first is, what does this text tell me about God? What does it tell me about God? His person, his work. Okay. For short, when I'm doing this with people, I just put... Uh, a theta, the Greek letter, and I just leave that. That's my, that's my little note. Theta is the first word in the Greek uh, 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 word for God, theos. And so I put theta and I say, what does this text tell me about God? That's what I have. Second, what does this text tell me about man, my condition, my, the, the sort of nature of man, all of those things? What does this text tell me about myself and all of us and all of humanity? And just put a little man so you got theta, man. Third question is, what does this text, how does it point to Jesus? How does it show us the gospel? How does this text, as Jesus said, all of the prophets spoke about me, right? So how does this text point to Jesus in the gospel? And this is the hardest sometimes part of the process as you're going through the question. But I just put a little cross right there just to get myself thinking how do I think about the cross through this? And then finally, what does that, this mean for us? So what? How should I live? And then a fifth, this isn't a question, but a fifth tool that is the absolute essential tool to this whole process is prayer. It's going to pray these things. Pray about it before. Pray about it during your study. Pray about it after your study. So those are my tools, and we're going to form the uh, sermon around those tools. Um, and so what's the main point or big idea of our text? The big point, the main point is that God is your powerful, present, redeeming provider. God is your powerful, present, redeemer and provider, however you want to put it. Therefore, do not be afraid. Do not fear. It's the big idea. And we'll get there through our questions. Okay. So the first question, what does this text tell us about God, his person and his work? The first thing that we're reminded about God in this text is that he is powerful, that he is present, that he is our redeemer and that he's our provider. Um, how do we see this? First, Moses once again reminds Israel that God brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. It's the first thing that we note in our text here. Uh, in the very first verse, it says, when you go out to war against your enemies and you see all the enemies, you shouldn't be afraid for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This should be old hat as we've gone through the book of Deuteronomy. In every single chapter, save just a very, very few, this ground, this reminder is present. Oh, by the way, don't forget, God brought you up out of Egypt, led you through the wilderness, brought you here, and is bringing you into the promised land. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, this is repeated. And it might cause you to wonder, is that really necessary, Moses, to keep saying it? Why are we keep saying it? Why do we keep saying it? But the Exodus event was the event. It was the most spectacular display of God's power and love 
and redemption in the entirety of Scripture up to the point of the cross. In fact, it was the, you might say, the type or the picture of redemption that the cross fulfilled, that the cross was the greater version of, that the cross looked back to and said, that was a little piece of redemption, this is redemption. But the Exodus event was the greatest event up to the point of the cross. It was the paradigm of God's love and redemption. And this power and love of God was not some distant thing. Rather, it was personal. God was for them. He was with them. He was their God. They were his people. Scripture says he bore them on eagles' wings. Makes me think of um, Tolkien's world of Middle Earth. Uh, Eagles play a very significant role in that world. If you've read the books, either The Hobbit or The the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, they play a very significant role. You see, they were the symbol of protection, security, and salvation. At the very moment when all seemed lost in the stories, the eagles come and swoop down. They retrieve the forlorn and the dying, and they bear them away and bring them to security. So it is with God and his people. He is the one who is present, who carries them through. And it's amazing... I think, in the face of things that are scary, how we forget that God is that God. Fear has a very powerful effect on us. Um, Scary things uh, stick in our minds and our eyes. They become bigger than reality. Uh, Just the other day, Owen and I were looking at a story on uh, on the news. Maybe you saw this. um, That has not left my mind. Maybe Owen was dreaming about it last night. I don't know if he was, but wouldn't be surprised. Um, There was a picture, a video and a story about a spider uh, that was carrying away its prey. Just a little video, you know, on CNN. This spider carrying away its prey. But it wasn't in the ordinary spider. It was a giant tarantula the size of a dinner plate carrying away an opossum. A big, hairy spider, this big, dragging away in its fangs an opossum. I will never, that will never leave my mind. I will never stop thinking about it. It's fear-inducing. And fear is this powerful emotion. It sears those images into your mind. And so it is necessary that the Lord remind us over and over and over again that He is greater than our enemies that stand before us with all their scary things their chariots, their large armies he says to the Israelites remember I brought you safely through the Red Sea I destroyed Pharaoh's army I protected you in the wilderness I provided for you I defeated your enemies I have brought you to the precipice of the promised land and I'm going to keep telling you that because I know how scary life is your enemies are I am greater than your enemies. Do not be afraid. For I have redeemed you. You are mine. How often do we forget that simple truth that God is powerful. And that he is for us. That he loves us. And protects us. And is with us. We also know that he provides for us in abundance. When the people of Israel get into the land... 
They'll begin to enjoy the fruit of the life, the life of the land. Um, they'll enjoy literal fruit from their vineyards. They'll enjoy their new homes that they've inherited or built. And they'll enjoy life and family and marriage. And so, when the Lord said, when it comes necessary to raise an army in battle, God's kind of like, meh, if you've got things back home, don't worry about it. Oh, you got a new house? Don't come and fight. Maybe if you, you're, you're at, in battle, someone will take your home. You don't want anything. If you've got a new home, just go deal with your new home. Enjoy it. Oh, you have a vineyard? Stay home and drink wine. That's what he says. Enjoy it. He has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit. Let him go back to his house. Oh, you're about to get married. Well, you don't want some guy swooping in on that. Just stay home. It seems a little strange. He's sort of nonchalant, feels like, about this whole war and battle thing. Sure, there are moments we must fight, but God is saying, I've got this. I've got this, and I have provided for you all of that. That belongs to you. I've given it to you. Enjoy it. Jesus said in the New Testament, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, take it upon yourself. It's not, it's not hard stuff. I think we often get um, this backwards, don't we, when we view the Christian life. We often view the Christian life as a huge burden. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to take this suffering. And it's all about suffering. You know, you get that vision of a Puritan kind of just kind of grinning, not even grinning, just kind of bearing it, you know, just kind of moving forward. Um, it's a bunch of rules, a bunch of sort of, okay, I got to do this, I got to be this. And I think when we experience Christianity in those terms, of it as kind of a burden and not a blessing, then we're not actually experiencing Christianity. I don't think you're experiencing Christianity. I think you're experiencing uh, other things, but I don't think it's Christianity. God says, the victory is mine, the blessing and joy are yours. I'm going to come back to this theme in a moment. I want to, I want to look, when we look at Jesus, I want to come back to this idea because. Um, I, I really believe that we, we sometimes struggle to see, even in our, even in our battle, even in, in our sort of spiritual battle in this life as a Christian, we often don't have joy. We don't have that sense of blessing, of God being at work, caring for us and providing for us. <laughs> He's saying, I have won. I have fought the battle. I am your conquering king. These enemies that you see in front of you are nothing. Enjoy the provision. He says, in the presence of your enemies, I will prepare a table before you. You will feast there. What? It's a strange place to have a feast. It's a reminder that I provide. For right now, I just want, we'll come back to it. I want you to contemplate. How's the Lord provided for you? But this is a good time to transition to our second question. Um, what does this text teach us about ourselves, about human nature, and the human condition? 
The first thing that stands out from this text is that humanity is at war. It's it's like an elephant in the room that no one really wants to deal with or talk about. You know, back when I was a kid, what was the song? Everybody, you know, it was on the the ads. It was everything. We are the world. We are. And it was just kind of like, we can all just hold hands and world peace is going to enter in and everybody's going to just love each other and everything's going to be great. What world is that? It's not the world I live in. It's not the world you live in. We are at war both in a very literal sense and in, very, in, in figurative ways as well. There has never been an epoch or an era of world peace since Eden. Certainly there are moments of more war and less war and you know, we want to fight for peace as much as we can. But there's never been a period of no war. Nations fight against nations. There are cold wars, guerrilla wars, nuclear wars, cyber wars, economic wars, wars on terror. And they range closer to home, too. There are civil wars, literally. We have them in our history. There are sociopolitical wars, media wars, culture wars, religious and church wars, business wars. There are all sorts of wars, wars on drugs. We have wars just about in everything. But there are wars much, much, much closer to home. There are wars in our home. Wars between husbands and between wives. Between mothers and fathers and their children. Between brothers. Between brothers and sisters. And we're at war with ourselves, aren't we? Internally. We war against our desires and our sin. We war against all sorts of demons. And this is at the heart of it all. This, this, this sin, this thing, this fall that led to enmity. Firstly, way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden. And Satan tempted Eve, and Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And ever since then, there's been a conflagration that has spread to every nook and cranny of our lives. The New Testament describes this main war, this true war for which all the other wars are just an expression of, right? They, 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 this, this war, this cosmic battle... All these other wars, from the big wars of nations to the little wars in our hearts, all stem from the same thing. Spiritual war. Ephesians 6 says it in that great passage on the armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's how Paul puts it. That's the real battle. And we do a great disservice, or great, I should say a great service. I was going to say disservice to ourselves, but it's actually a great service to the evil one when we dismiss sort of spiritual warfare. I think it's, we're uncomfortable in sort of a modern, sort of academic, reformed perspective to talk about spiritual warfare. We, don't, we get just a little uncomfortable with it. Um, 
Friends, you are at war. Sin, flesh, and the devil are your great enemies. Yes, I said the word devil. I don't know why I have to defend that. It's a scriptural word. But I I do try to avoid saying it, not because I'm afraid of the word, like the folks in Harry Potter's books who said of Lord Voldemort, what was his name? He who must not be named. That's not why I'm not afraid to say the word devil, but because it's so caricatured in our culture. It's not always helpful, so I tend to use words like the evil one or Satan, words that are less sort of culturally bound. But the Greek word diabolos simply means accuser or slanderer. It describes his aim, his goal. He stands there ready. He wants to accuse us. He wants us to, to be, in other words, at enmity with God so that he can, he can rule over us and we would be shackled to him in service to him. He stands to accuse your heart, to let you know that you are, in fact, a sinner, justly deserving of God's wrath, and apart from Christ, at war with him. That is what his aims are. And the truth is, because of this war and all the evil that comes from it, as well as the evil and sin that resides in our hearts, we shrink back in fear. Don't we? It's what we do. Notice the language the priest uses to describe the fear of the people they see on the oncoming army. Don't let your heart faint. Don't panic. Don't be in dread. And then later on he says, don't, let, you know, your, don't, don't uh, go to war if you're afraid because we don't want other people's hearts to melt away like your own. Melt away. Isn't that what fear does? You just fall away. Um, I'm going to use my son as an illustration again. Sorry, Bo. When he was young, very little, we went to see a um, fireworks. And I might have used this illustration once before, but we went to see a fireworks um, up in Ohio uh, at my parents' place. And we were pretty close to the fireworks, but it was, you know, the first time they'd seen them. And, you know, we're excited. Oh, kids, it's here it comes. And Owen's just minding his own business, and all of a sudden the fireworks start. And I have never seen him run and scream and run away. He was very little. He thought the world was coming to an end. His heart melted away before him. Fear is a powerful force. And apart from God's mercy and grace, our sin and the battle we wage against it will cause us to faint and panic and run and melt away and give up. But, like Paul in his own wrestling said, Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This brings us to our third question. How do we see Christ or the gospel in our text? Whenever I share this paradigm uh, with people for studying scripture, it's with this question that people most often struggle, especially when looking at Old Testament texts. How does this show us Jesus? Jesus isn't mentioned here, right? How do we see the gospel at work? Well, it does mention the redemptive story of the Exodus. Uh, And so we can start there. It's our first gospel link. The New Testament points to the cross as the fulfillment of that redemptive work of the Exodus. And so whenever you come across the language of redemption in the New Testament, you can assume the writer is drawing on that Exodus event, the imagery of it. 
And so we can say with Paul in Galatians that under the law, apart from Christ, we were captives. Captives to sin. Captives to death. And yet Christ conquers sin and death and delivers us and redeems us. Christ conquers on the cross. God is powerful. God is present. And he provides for us primarily through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our defender and our conquering king. And the Israelites of old, um, they needed to be reminded. And I will say this every single week. We need to be reminded of the gospel, don't we? Christ is our conquering king. He redeems us on the cross. If God is for us, who can be against us? So the very first way we see that Christ uh, in this text is in his redeeming power. But there are other ways we see Christ in our text. Notice this little bit about when you go to war, they were told to first offer peace. Now, there's some interesting aspects to our text that I think are challenging to us. Namely, this idea of, okay, you offer them peace. The assumption is if you don't offer them peace, they're going to get conquered. Um, that they then come into servitude. Now, there are other passage, passages in Scripture which talk about how you treat a servant uh, under, your, uh, under your power and then how you eventually release them. So this is not a sort of an ultimate aim that they ever, you would sort of have a bunch of slaves or servants. It wasn't a perpetual thing, um, but it was what you did with the, the places that uh, you conquered. Um, and that's uncomfortable for us. We don't, we don't think in those terms. Uh, very often. Um, but I, I think we also do a disservice to apply sort of modern conceptions of slavery and servitude onto the Old Testament. So we also, we also have to be careful going the other direction, which is something we, we do quite frequently. But the very first move, and this is the most important thing that we see here, the first move is to offer peace. Um, one thing that we know about Jesus, uh, we get from C.S. Lewis. Now, I'm, jo- I'm joking, but probably one of the most oft-quoted things, and I've quoted it here, of Lewis, is what Lewis said, or the beaver in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia um, said of Aslan, which is, is he um, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Right? That quote. Um, and I think it's a really important paradigm for who Christ is. Christ is a king who conquers his and our enemies. He comes and he will vanquish all his enemies. Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. No one in all of creation, whether in the grave or not, will get away without bending the knee. And the question is for us is how That bending of the knee happens. Christ came to offer peace. Christ secured peace on the cross. And so when he came, he says, Believe in me and you will be saved. That's what what he desired. And yet, there is a reality that Christ is coming again. And when he comes, he will finally and forever establish peace. 
And when all his and our enemies uh, are completely done away with, every knee will indeed bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But it will not be by means of redemption. Those are, those are tough words for us to hear. The Apostle Peter said in his second epistle, that while it's still day, pay attention, the Lord is coming again. While it's still day, turn to him. Come to him. He offers you his peace. Take his yoke, which is easy and light. Receive all the abundance of his blessing, which he provides for you. For the Lord does not tarry forever. How do we see Christ? We see Christ as the great redeemer. We see Christ as the conquering king who will establish peace as he established in the cross, peace between us and God in redemption, but ultimately and forever peace where there is no more warfare, no more sin, no more evil, no more wickedness. God is powerful and present with his people. We are by nature at war and are fearful, yet God, through our conquering Lord, brings us redemption and peace. Finally, and in conclusion, how do we respond? Paul sums it up perfectly, right? He does that a lot. He does it in different ways. Uh, He calls us to action. Put on the armor of God, therefore. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Put it on because it's nothing that you bring to the table. It's something that belongs to you in Christ. Put it on and walk. Be strengthened in the Lord. Know that he is the one who fights your battles. Know that there's nothing to fear. For God is with you. But maybe my favorite passage by Paul says it this way in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Therefore, so what's the, what's the, uh, the, Okay, we're not condemned anymore. What does that mean for us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is it that we're called to? Rejoice in the Lord, who is our strength, the powerful king, who is present, who provides for us. And do not fear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? None of it. None of it. Do not be afraid. The Lord is your provider, your protector, your shield, your present Savior and Redeemer.
pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are with us, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you give us all the blessings of Christ, undeserved, that when we were enemies, you conquered our enemy. You conquered sin and death, and you redeemed us. Lord, fix our minds on that King. Help us to not shrink back in fear. Help us to recognize your power and your love. And help us to walk in the face of whatever comes, knowing that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.